Okay, today I'm going to be talking about the 1970s. Uh, for every action, there is a reaction, uh, in physics, of course, uh, but also in history. And it was inevitable, I think, that the actions of the 1960s in culture, in politics, in social life, in economics, would produce reactions. These reactions came, of course, in the 1970s, a decade of resurgent conservatism in politics and social life, of stagnation in economic life, and of defeat in foreign policy. The 1970s, in fact, have been described as the age of limits, the decade of limits, a period in which Americans discovered that they did not have as much control over world events and over other nations as they thought they did, as they finally lost the war in Vietnam, as they stood by helplessly as Arab nations raised oil prices and Iranian mobs held American hostages. In the 1970s, for the first time since the end of World War II, the domestic economy stopped growing. There's that word growth again. Uh, and the unquestioned American industrial dominance of the world market began to fade. During the 1970s, the political system appeared to be breaking down. During Watergate, of course, and even afterwards, seemed to be incapable of producing strong leaders, decisive leaders, producing a series of uh, indecisive and even inept presidents. America's cities, with the war on poverty, just a memory, and social services cut, began to look like relics of World War II bombings, abandoned, hollowed out, ghostly. And the social and cultural changes of the 1960s began to look like irresponsible excesses to large numbers of American men and women who we didn't hear much from during the 1960s, but who were certainly there. They were not initiators, like, let's say, hippies or anti-war protesters or civil rights activists or SDS members, but they were there all right. And we saw them beginning to flex their muscles when I talked about white backlash after the urban riots and the advent of black power in the mid-1960s. By 1968, these people had elected Richard Nixon president, and soon after, they had a popular name, the Silent Majority. And before we talk about the 1970s specifically, we have to talk about them the silent majority, since they were the decade's most important social and political phenomenon. Now, politicians and political pundits and professors and intellectuals discovered the silent majority during the 1970s and spoke and wrote volumes about the silent majority as though they hadn't existed before, as though they had just come along in the mid-1960s. The silent majority had always been around in America. They were just known by different names before then. Ethnic Democrats. Blue-collar Democrats. Machine Democrats. Southern Democrats. New Deal Democrats. And, of course, the common denominator word here is Democrats. These people had provided the electoral muscle for New Deal liberalism. They are the men and women who had voted for FDR, for Harry Truman, 
for Kennedy, for Johnson, as recently as 1964, as well as, on a local level, for people like Richard Daley, the mayor of Chicago in the north, and Governor George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama in the south. So the silent majority had always been around, but they only became a phenomenon when they stopped voting for Democrats, and especially liberal Democrats, on the national level, and began voting for Republicans. Republicans like Richard Nixon, of course, but later on, Ronald Reagan, and even later on, those two most unlikely candidates for a man who would carry a lunch pail to vote for, the two George Bushes. Now this is when they caught the nation's eye, because there were so many of them. And in many respects, what we came to know as the silent majority in the 1970s uh, have been at the center of American politics throughout the nation's history, whatever you want to call them as a group. When, in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln said that God must have loved the common people so, he made so many of them, he was talking about what we call in the 70s the silent majority. When FDR spoke of the forgotten American during the Great Depression, he was talking about what we call in the 1970s the silent majority. And even in the 1990s, a much more affluent and prosperous time, uh, uh, when the average American, the common American, had uh, more than any previous generation of Americans could even dream of, political analysts talked about the soccer moms, a modern variation of the 1970s theme of silent majority. In the 21st century, there were the NASCAR dads. Again, you're really talking about the same people here. So, who were the famous or infamous silent majority that played such a role in the politics and the culture of the 1970s and have played such a major role in the politics and culture of America under other names at other times? Who was the silent majority? Well, let's start with what they were not. They were not young in the sense that they were not college students or anti-war prote protesters or members of the counterculture or hippies. They were not black. They did not participate in the civil rights movement. They may have given it some lukewarm support at the very beginning, uh, but turned sharply against it, uh, uh, and to a large extent against blacks generally, after it went too far in their words, which could mean anything from urban riots uh, to the upsurge in crime of the 1960s, uh, rising welfare costs or affirmative action. They were not rich. They worked in factories and offices uh, 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 and businesses, but they didn't own those businesses unless they were smaller businesses. They didn't own big businesses. And if they worked in offices, they didn't run the offices. Neither, however, were they poor. Their parents may have been poor, but they were not. And in fact, this is how they differentiated themselves from African Americans. They had escaped poverty and escaped the ghetto. And as far as they were concerned, they weren't going back, either geographically or economically. They were, income-wise, in the great middle of America. And as I've said to you many times before, uh, the American middle class expanded tremendously after World War II. Well, these were its representatives. 
happy with their new status, but also very concerned about keeping it. Remember when I talked about that in connection with anti-communism. And thus, they were very nervous about the changes that were taking place across America in the 1960s because they appeared to threaten their status. Now, where were they from, this silent majority? Well, although they were sometimes called Middle Americans, not all were from the middle of America. Many were from the South, where they had voted for Barry Goldwater, a Republican, in 1964, while most of the rest of the country was voting for Lyndon Johnson. Now, these Southerners were, of course, greatly disturbed over the way the civil rights movement was proceeding and the racial changes that were sweeping the South. Now, in keeping with their silent character, these Southerners were not only the racist, racist sheriffs, the terrorizing Ku Klux Klan, the marauding white citizens' councils that we hear so much about when we read of the white Southern reaction to the civil rights movement. Obviously, they included these people, of course. But also, many more quiet, average people who lived in the South who may have never said a crossword to an African-American in their lives, but who, in their quiet, just-let-me-live-my-life way, were disturbed about the ways blacks were advancing in the South. And these quiet white Southerners represent, to me, a general rule of history which transcends their Southerness, which applies to most people in history. Most people in history, most people that we study historically, are not crusaders, are not people like Martin Luther King who want to change the course of the world, but average, everyday people who live average, everyday lives and worry about average, everyday things like keeping their jobs, feeding their families, getting through the day, getting through the week, and eventually getting through their lives. Even in what we consider to be the most momentous times, times like the Civil War, times like the 1960s, most people are like this. Most Southerners in the 1960s did not belong to the Ku Klux Klan or the White Citizens Council. They did not beat or kill blacks. Not because they were racial liberals, not because they didn't have a lot of racist, racism in them, like the Ku Klux Klan, of course, many did, but because it wasn't in their nature to take a public stand. They were private people. Most people are private people, and they just wanted to keep living their lives. But when those lives began to change, and many, of course, did change in the South during the Civil Rights Movement, these white Southerners reacted in a defensive and a self-protective way. They weren't great political philosophers. They just wanted to protect what they thought was theirs, what was private and immediate and everyday, their way of life, if you will. Not in the grand, public, southern way of life sense. It's a phrase that a lot of southern politicians would use. Uh, 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 but a personal way of life. That restricted and closed-in way of life that most people have. And to protect that private way of life, these average men and women of the white south, uh, or, as George Wallace, I think, very aptly dis, you know, dis, described them once, this is a quote, this average man on the street, this man in the textile mill, this man in the steel mill, this barber, this beautician, the policeman on the beat, the little businessman, the mass of people, 
these average men and women of the South voted for Richard Nixon in 1968. Not to mention George Wallace himself, uh, who was running in 1968, and again voted overwhelmingly for Richard Nixon in 1972. Now, members of the silent majority did not just come from the South. They came from the large cities of the North and the Midwest, and increasingly its suburbs as well. Now these, this element of the silent majority moving from the South to uh, the North and Midwest, these were people who had been the mainstays of FDR's New Deal coalition. Loyal Democrats until the changes of the 1960s in race, uh, in culture, in social life, began to make them very nervous as well. These were the so-called ethnics, Catholics, who were Irish, Italian, Polish, Slavic, as well as some numbers of middle and lower class uh, uh, Jews, and as well as some Protestants as well. Together, if you put the white South and the northern and midwestern ethnics together, this comprised a huge chunk of the American electorate, the American voters and a tremendous source of Republican potential power. Because these people were separate from the traditional Republican base of small-town Midwestern Protestants, Eastern business interests, and Western Sunbelt residents. So this was a potential new source of power for the Republican Party. They had the power the silent majority then, to realign politics in the United States and make the Republicans the majority party in national politics if the Democrats did not address their anger. And what were these people angry about, the people in the silent majority? Well, they were angry about a number of things, I think, but primarily they were angry about race and its overt manifestation to members of the silent majority, which is crime. Now, perhaps the best way to explain this is to personalize it. In 1970, two men who had worked for the U.S. Census Bureau, so they knew numbers, named Richard Scammon and Benjamin Wattenberg. Scammon is spelled S-C-A-M-M-O-N, and Benjamin Wattenberg, that's spelled W-A-T-T-E-N-B-E-R-G, Richard Scammon and Benjamin Wattenberg, published a book, a famous book, a best-selling book, called The Real Majority. And in The Real Majority, this book that appeared in 1970, Scammon and Wattenberg attempted through statistical analysis to identify the typical American, the average American, the kind of person who also, almost by definition, would be emblematic and representative of the silent majority. And Scammon and Wattenberg, using what today we would regard as primitive com you know, computer analysis, this is, after all, 1970, came up with this imaginary person, this fictitious person. The average American, they claim by statistical analysis, is, and I quote, a 47-year-old housewife from the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio, whose husband is a machinist. 47-year-old housewife from the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio. Husband is a machinist. And listen to how Scammon and Wattenberg in The Real Majority describe this woman's main fear and how they advise both political parties, Democrats and Republicans, to take her fears very seriously. This is a quote from the book. To know that that lady in Dayton is afraid to walk the streets alone at night, 
to know that she has a mixed view about blacks and civil rights, because before moving to the suburbs, she lived in a neighborhood that became all black, to know that her brother-in-law is a policeman, to know that she does not have the money to move if her new neighborhood deteriorates. To know all this is the beginning of contemporary political wisdom. This 47-year-old housewife from Dayton, Ohio, then, was angry because the crime rate had skyrocketed in the 1960s, with violent crime tripling in many cities. And much of this crime originated in black communities. Now, there were many broad historical explanations for this fact. First, the disappearance of unskilled industrial jobs in the cities after 1945. Jobs that would have given African Americans the same start into the American mainstream that white immigrants, including quite possibly the Dayton housewife's ancestors themselves, had benefited from. Then there was segregated housing and urban renewal and highway construction policies that hemmed blacks in into deteriorating and isolated urban ghettos. And we talked about uh, this uh, a little bit when I talked about the 1950s. Then there were discriminatory loan and building policies that kept blacks out of the growing suburbs. And I talked about that again also in the context of the 1950s, as well as the generalized racism that blacks faced every day as they tried to get through their lives. But the 47-year-old housewife from Dayton, Ohio, didn't want to know from these broad historical explanations. She was just afraid of crime, afraid of blacks, and angry enough to vote for whoever, even a Republican, who would speak to that anger. And what else was she angry about, this 47-year-old Dayton housewife, the typical American? Well, she was also angry about the culture in America during the 1960s, and specifically what I described in my earlier lecture as the counterculture, the challenges to authority, the student rebellions, the anti-war protests, the freedom in personal lifestyle and expression, the breakdown in family mores and sexual mores, the long hair, the rock music, the outrageous clothing, the drugs, everything, in other words, that we associate with the 1960s. If the 47-year-old Dayton housewife had a young cousin during this time, and I'm speaking figuratively uh, here, of course, because the Dayton housewife, of course, is figurative, doesn't really exist, it might have been someone like Bill O'Reilly. For this Dayton housewife, the typical member of the silent majority, everything in her traditional set of values was, by the late 1960s and early 1970s, under attack. And what's more, in fact, this woman had, in her mind at least, real class grievances by the late 60s and early 70s. Because the elites of the United States, the professionals, the academics, the uh, media representatives, the foundation executives, the, uh, the, the lawyers, the people who ran the society, the Ivy Leaguers, the establishment, all these people were now sneering at her, calling her a racist, while they themselves lived in upper-class segregated neighborhoods, using their class privileges to avoid making any personal sacrifices for the cause of racial integration. They called her ignorant, vulgar, uneducated, unworthy even. And 
most of these educated elites who despise this 47-year-old Dayton housewife were Democrats, were liberals, who seemed much more concerned with the problems of the black poor than with her. And in fact, these elites seem to want to solve the problems of the black poor at her expense, giving them through national programs like the War on Poverty and local expansions of welfare benefits, her money, giving them, meaning African Americans, special treatment through affirmative action, a program that didn't benefit her. So this white Dayton housewife was angry because of what she considered to be class inequities, of being squeezed in the middle by blacks pushing from below and by elites pressing down from above. And this anger, too, seemed to be unaddressed by the party she had supported for so many years, the Democratic Party. So, racial anger, cultural anger, class anger. This is what was bothering the 47-year-old housewife from Dayton, Ohio, and by extension, the silent majority by the late 1960s. And the main beneficiary of that anger, of course, was the Republican candidate for the presidency, the successful Republican presidential candidate uh, uh, in 1968. Uh, uh, And that, of course, is the brilliant, paranoid, visionary, tortured, and complicated, not to mention downright, downright strange, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Now, of course, I could do an entire lecture, probably an entire course, on Richard Nixon, who was the living embodiment of so much that was admirable and despicable in American life. A self-made man and a vicious political street fighter. A man who advanced the cause of peace with his missions to the Soviet Union and to China, while at the same time threatening the constitutional foundations of the American Republic through Watergate. But I'll just try to briefly summarize here uh, Nixon's uh, career and his presidency, which lasted from 1969 to 1974. Nixon was born poor or lower middle class, however you want to put it, uh, uh, in California, uh, outside of Los Angeles in 1913. Uh, his orientation, I always thought, was very lower middle class. That's, that's, that's how he viewed himself. Uh, He became a small-town lawyer. Uh, 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 He uh, ran for Congress in California as successfully in 1946, uh, and he became a passionate uh, anti-communist. He's the man, actually, on the House Un-Americans Activities Committee uh, uh, who worked with Whitaker Chambers, who we talked about earlier, to bring down Alger Hiss. Uh, if there are two people, two names associated with the downfall of Alger Hiss, it's Whitaker Chambers, which we talked about, and the congressman on the House Un-American Activities Committee who believed Whitaker Chambers from the beginning and did not believe Alger Hiss and worked to get him convicted, Richard Nixon. Now, he used the Alger Hiss case to run successfully for the Senate in 1950 from California, and then he became uh, Dwight Eisenhower's vice president between 1953 and 1961. He ran for president in 1960 and lost narrowly to JFK, uh, an election uh, thanks to the handiwork of that master political craftsman, Richard Daley of Chicago, was probably stolen from him. After he also lost a race for the governorship of California in 1962, Nixon's political career seemed to be over. 
but he was resurrected after the Republican debacle of 1964 under Barry Goldwater and the nation's turn to the right in the late 1960s. Now, Nixon always viewed himself as an outsider and hated the Eastern establishment and the liberal elites uh, 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 who returned the favor tenfold, making them their public enemy number one. I mean, the visceral uh, 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 hatred of, of, of most Eastern intellectuals for Richard Nixon uh, was, was something that uh, uh, something almost had to be experienced to be believed. You know, when Nixon uh, uh, came out of law school in the late 1930s, he went to Duke University Law School and did very well there. He, I think he was either number one or two in his class. Uh, he went, as so many young lawyers do, as I did, uh, to Wall Street to try to get a job. Uh, and he was unable to get a job there. Uh, uh, large, not because of his lack of intellect or, or anything, but he didn't have the right connections uh, in the 1930s that made a big difference. So he was rejected by these, all these Wall Street law firms. And some people who were looking for keys to understanding Nixon uh, 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 argue that he never got over that, that he became so angry at the Eastern establishment because of this personal rejection, not getting a job that he deserved to get, uh, uh, that he turned against these Eastern establishment elites uh, uh, for the rest of his life, uh, uh, and uh, people say that that's uh, that's a key to his uh, to his personality. Ironically, he did work for a Wall Street law firm quite successfully in the 1960s when he was out of politics. But by then, his personality had been shaped. Now, with this personal background, it's not surprising that Richard Nixon would have an affinity for the silent majority. Uh, after all, uh, they too were outsiders of sorts, and certainly uh, disliked liberal elitists, as uh, Nixon did. But in addition to Nixon's prodigious intellectual gifts, and Nixon was called many things during his life, but stupid was not one of them, except for Watergate, uh, came an overweening anger. He was a very angry man. Uh, 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 again, like many elements of the silent majority. And also came a paranoia on the part of Nixon against his enemies. In the press, on college campuses, uh, among radicals, uh, in the Democratic Party. And it's this paranoia that eventually ruined his political career and nearly constitutional democracy itself. Now, in many ways, Richard Nixon had a productive presidency. In foreign policy, he managed to wind down the Vietnam War and got the United States out of the war, uh, as I described uh, uh, last time. Uh, not perfectly, but at least he got us out. Uh, his openings uh, uh, to uh, the USSR and to China, uh, 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 which, which he visited, uh, uh, took advantage of the split between those two nations to uh, get them to advance the cause of peace, and he deserves credit for that. Then there was the Nixon Doctrine, in which America promised economic and military aid to anti-communist nations, but no Vietnam-style supplying of combat troops. Uh, a sensible doctrine, uh, which, while it led to United States support of dicta dictatorial regimes like uh, nations like Iran, Chile, and Nicaragua, I'll be talking about those a little later, uh, at least prevented any future Vietnams, at least up to now. Now, domestically, although Nixon always described himself as a conservative, he was much more of a pragmatist and a centrist. Uh, uh, and he pioneered a lot of new programs and agencies that we associate with liberalism. 
the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, which was started during his presidency, uh, affirmative action, which got its real start during the Nixon administration, uh, the Occupational Safety uh, Hazards Act, again, started during the Nixon administration, and even a failed plan called the Family Assistance Plan, or FAP, to guarantee a minimum annual income federally guaranteed for all Americans. Now, this had been one of the poor people's campaign's goals. You know, Martin Luther King's uh, uh, poor people's campaign, that was their goal, to have a nationally guaranteed income. Uh, uh, and Nixon proposed this. Uh, ironically, it didn't get through a very liberal uh, uh, Democratic Congress, largely because he was so hated. Now, on the conservative side of the ledger, uh, 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 the Nixon presidency also began the process of giving states and localities more control over how to spend the federal monies that they received through what he called his block grants or new federalism program. And anticipation of more conservative policies in the Reagan administration, uh, not to mention the Republican Congresses of the 1990s and early 2000s. But, of course, Richard Nixon will always be remembered primarily not for his policies in office, but the way in which he left office for what we know as Watergate. Now, the sad thing about Watergate, as I mentioned earlier, is that it was so unnecessary. Uh, uh, Nixon was going to win quite easily uh, in 1972, no matter who the Democratic candidate was going to be. In June 1972, a group from the uh, uh, Nixon re-election campaign, uh, the group called CREEP, the uh, acronym CREEP, the uh, Committee to Re-elect the President, was caught burglarizing the offices of the Democratic Committee at the Watergate Hotel. Now, even at this point, Richard Nixon could have gotten away and could have come out clean if he had come clean. But instead, he planned a cover-up, paying off witnesses, lying to the press, using the CIA to stop the FBI investigation of the break-in, making false claims of executive privilege. In the end, we see Richard Nixon's own paranoia bringing him down in a, in a modern version of a Shakespearean tragedy. One wonders, for example, why he felt the need to tape his conversations. But then the Nazis had also kept detailed records. I'm not comparing Richard Nixon to a Nazi uh, uh, in his policy, obviously, just uh, in his compulsion to keep records of everything. In any case, the taped conversations were decisive in ending Nixon's presidency because in August 1974, after two years of legal attempts by the White House to keep them from public scrutiny on the grounds of executive privilege, he was finally ordered to turn the tapes over and Nixon was unmasked as a liar. A liar to the courts, a liar to Congress, a liar to the American people, and a liar even to members of his own family. The tapes proved that Nixon had known of and participated in the Watergate cover-up uh, almost from the very beginning. And facing certain impeachment and removal from office, he resigned in favor of Vice President Gerald Ford on August 8, 1974, ending a sordid chapter in our nation's constitutional history that hopefully will never be repeated. Now, while the nation was riveted on Watergate, glued to television screens during uh, televised hearings and speculating about what was going to happen next in this ongoing political soap opera. Much of great importance was going on, but behind the scenes that would 
while less dramatic, have an equally profound effect on America's future. These events were mostly in the economic sphere. Now, by the early 1970s, the American economy, as I said earlier, had finally stopped growing, stopped expanding, uh, ending a quarter century of unprecedented economic growth. The strain of the incredibly expensive Vietnam War was a factor in this, of course. When I said earlier in the term, when I referred to World War II, that war is the economic health of the state, I wasn't referring to wars like Vietnam that cost $2 billion a month. That's just too much. There was also the impact of foreign competition in the auto industry and steel industries and others, uh, which Americans had dominated since the end of World War II. By the 70s, the term made in Japan, which even a decade earlier had been a shorthand way of saying cheap, shoddy workmanship, was not a laughing matter anymore. Uh, uh, in cars, in electronics, or for that matter, in finance. Nor was the phrase made in Germany, for that matter. America, in fact, by the 70s, was importing more than it was exporting. In other words, it had a negative balance of trade or a trade deficit, that weakened the value of the American dollar against the other currencies of the world. Our currency had become just another currency, not the world leader. But the cruelest blow that the American economy suffered in the early 1970s, while the nation, and also Richard Nixon, was completely preoccupied by Watergate, was the Arab oil embargo of 1973, a retaliation for United States support of Israel after it was attacked by Egypt in the Yom Kippur War of that fall, in which the Arab oil cartel, which is known even today as OPEC, O-P-E-C, restricted America's oil supply, driving up prices to unheard of levels and creating a shortage that soon affected daily life in the United States, which of course ran on gasoline as it does today. There were gas rationings, there was gas lines, something I actually remember personally. I used to argue with my younger brother as to who was going to sit in those interminable lines. Uh, neither of my parents drove, incidentally, which is uh, a common situation in uh, mass transit-saturated New York City. We were the only ones who drove in the family. But the oil embargo uh, and the oil shortages, went their effects went way beyond mere inconvenience to individuals like me at the gas pump, because the oil price rise rippled through the American economy as a whole, driving up oil prices, putting firms out of business, and eventually, of course, a large number of Americans out of work. In fact, by the time Richard Nixon left office in August 1974, both unemployment and inflation, inflation meaning rises, rising prices that uh, outstrip wages, both unemployment and inflation were extremely high, climbing towards double digits. Now, the simultaneous rise in both these indicators, unemployment and inflation, was heretofore thought to be impossible by economists. Now think of the Great Depression of the 1930s, for example. You will recall that unemployment was high, but prices were relatively low. That, in fact, was the problem for FDR, uh, uh, raising prices so that they, you know, that they could, uh, uh, they, they could, they could meet demand. Now, 
High unemployment in the 1930s, of course, meant that people didn't have the money to take advantage of the low prices. In other words, if you have one, you don't have the other. Conversely, right after World War II, America had low unemployment, about a 2 or 3% unemployment rate, but high prices and, of course, high inflation. But there, too, both not high inflation and high unemployment at the same time. People after World War II had jobs, but their paychecks didn't cover the rising cost of living. That's, that's inflation. But by the mid-1970s, America had done what, America, uh, but what economists had claimed could not happen. It had both high unemployment and high inflation in what came to be known for the rest of the 1970s as both Presidents Ford and Carter battled it unsuccessfully as stagflation. Now, stagflation and the general economic stagnation in the United States during the 1970s reinforced the conservatism of the silent majority because the nation was now forced to confront the political and economic and social consequences of this lack of economic growth. They could not put off the question of distribution of resources anymore because the American economy was no longer growing. Up until the 1970s, as I've mentioned, as the uh, readings have mentioned, constant economic growth could pay for government social welfare programs and make the, re the difficult decisions about redistributing resources in America, uh, what is really boiling down to the question of, or what really boils down to the question of what is equality in America, uh, it would make this question avoidable. Because if the pie keeps growing, there was no need to worry about dividing it. It will just keep growing for everyone. But by the end of growth in the 1970s, choices had to be made, basic choices about who got what, and specifically, what the poor would get and what the middle class would get. In a nation unaccustomed to limits, especially since the end of World War II, there were now stringent limits. And the choice that the silent majority made, in effect, was that they were not going to make the sacrifices in this new climate of limits. The poor and the blacks were. The silent majority supported Nixon's slashing of the war on poverty in the early 1970s and throughout the rest of the decade. They backed cuts in social service spending and in taxes that were aimed at the, at the nation's uh, poor and black communities. The 1970s, in fact, were the decade of tax revolts among the, the nation's white middle class, among the silent majority, and of attempts to slash government budgets in a sense, dividing up a pie that was no longer growing in a way that preserved middle-class privileges and middle-class lives as much as possible. But even so, it was not enough to cushion even the silent majority from the economic blows of this decade, a sobering decade in which all Americans began to wonder if America had reached its limits. By the end of the decade, as we saw in the picture in our textbook, uh, even Time magazine, the bastion of the established order, was asking, is capitalism working? And a resurgent American right wing, composed both of social and cultural conservatives and 
anti-bureaucratic free marketeers, we'll talk about them in more detail next time, was growing in power, convinced that they had the answer to making capitalism and America as a whole work again. But that story is one for the 1980s, not for the 1970s. That story is for next time. For the 1970s, neither Gerald Ford nor Jimmy Carter was able to take America beyond the limits that now seem to imprison the country permanently, both in economics, because stagflation continued to bedevil the country, and in foreign policy as well, since it seemed that for most of the decade, in the Cold War battle between the forces of capitalism and the forces of Marxism, America, it seemed, as Whitaker Chambers had always said he feared it was, on the losing side. And the presidency of Jimmy Carter, during which America suffered perhaps a greater foreign policy humiliation than even losing the Vietnam War, which needless to say also occurred in the 1970s, this decade of defeat and limits, exemplified it. Now, Carter, when he became president in 1977, attempted to shift American foreign policy away from the rigid anti-communism that had characterized previous administrations, both Republican uh, uh, and Democrat, for the past 30 years, uh, to one in which the level of a foreign nation's respect for human rights and democracy would be the prime determinant of United States support. No longer, new President Carter vowed would Americans support uh, dictatorial regimes simply because they were anti-communist, as the Nixon administration, for example, had definitely made a habit of. And on the surface, this seemed to be a laudable goal. Unfortunately for Carter and the United States, however, it did not work. The nation was caught in between anti-communism, on the one hand, and human rights, on the other never able in a practical sense to settle on one or the other, and often getting the worst of both. Soviet gains combined with angry reactions from people of nations whose dictatorial regimes the United States had backed for the deck for decades, uh, uh, and that even Jimmy Carter could not completely break away from. A good example of this came in Nicaragua where American presidents from FDR to Gerald Ford had supported the repressive but reliably anti-communist Somoza regime. That's S-O-M-O-Z-A. He's an SOB, FDR had once said of Somoza, but he's our SOB. I think I mentioned that to you once. It's a great FDR line, and it sums up a lot of American foreign policy uh, uh, in the 20th century, anti-communist foreign policy. He's an SOB, but he's our SOB. He is not the USSR's SOB. Now, Carter tried to end the gross human rights violations in Nicaragua, speaking out against them publicly, which no other American president had done, and withholding aid to Somoza uh, as a way of backing this up. But in, his view, in the view of his critics on the right, Carter may have encouraged the Marxist Sandinista rebels in Nicaragua, uh, uh, who, when they finally overthrew Somoza in 1979, were stridently anti-American, despite Carter's support for human rights there. Too little, too late 
in the Sandinista's view. And, of course, the humiliating events in Iran were Exhibit A of Carter's human rights-oriented policy, as well as, in the view of his conservative critics, the depths to which American power and prestige had fallen by the end of the 1970s. Now, the Shah of Iran had been installed by the Americans uh, in 1953 because he was anti-communist, a reliable uh, uh, pro-American bulwark on the southern edge of the Soviet Union. Between 1953 and his ouster by Muslim fundamentalists in early 1979, the Shah of Iran had attempted to modernize and even westernize his country. Uh, his regime was notable in the region, uh, in the area of women's rights. But the Shah was also notoriously uh, a, a corrupt and profligate uh, and had provided, presided over a police state unworthy, at least in President Carter's view by the late 1970s, of a U.S. ally. As was the case in Nicaragua, however, once the Ayatollah Khomeini and his fundamentalist supporters took over in Iran, Carter's human rights policies got no credit, only scorn. He was just another infidel American to them. And when Carter allowed the Shah of Iran, who was suffering from cancer, into the United States for medical treatment in November 1979, the Iranians struck back, taking 66 Americans hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. For more than a year, Americans, including the silent majority, saw only affronts to American prestige. Flag burnings, harassment of the hostages, and denunciations by Iranians of the United States as the great Satan. Carter seemed powerless. With the exception of a botched rescue attempt, he appeared almost paralyzed as critics lambasted his weakness and his human rights-oriented foreign policy. A policy that looked even worse when the USSR, seemingly contemptuous of United States power, almost daring America to do anything about it, invaded neighboring Afghanistan in December 1979. <coughs> Although we know what eventually happened to them there and what happened to us there. American international prestige now appeared to be in free fall. Iran, Nicaragua, not to mention the Soviet Union, all seemed to thumb their noses at America to delight in its humiliation. And at home, the American economy continued to stagnate with continued high inflation and unemployment and factories closing everywhere, especially in the industrial Midwest, now nicknamed the Rust Belt, where frustrated auto workers smashed the windows of Japanese cars they encountered on the streets of Detroit. An ineffectual, symbolic outburst against an American economic system that had appeared, like so many other aspects of American life in the 1970s, to have reached its limits. Had Whitaker Chambers been right? Was America, both domestically and in its foreign policy, going to be the losing side? As the 1970s came to an end, this question was in the back of the minds of many Americans, quite possibly the dispirited and exhausted Jimmy Carter himself, 
who had earlier in his presidency chided the American people for their, as he put it, malaise. But as many Americans pondered this question, there was, of course, one American who was sure he knew the answer. America's best days, argued a Hollywood actor and corporate pitch man named Ronald Reagan, who at almost 70 was making his third attempt for the presidency in 1980. America's best days lie before it. And next time, we will see whether this preternaturally serene, almost naively optimistic man was correct. <laughs>